1: our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen.
0: See my bleeding, dying,
1: Lord. You'll open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 4. Uh, we'll read verses 16 through 25. Uh, that's found on page 941 of your pew Bible. I'll give you a second to turn there. Romans 4, uh, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as had been told as he had been told, "So shall your offspring be." He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord.
0: So ask God to work in our hearts as we come to his word. Lord, you have given this word and you mean for it to bless your people and equip your people. It is profitable for teaching, for training, for correction. Lord, it is, it is profitable for doctrine. It is profitable for us that we may be adequate for every good work, that we may be adequate for love, for spending ourselves, for the sake of others. Bless us, Lord. Feed us. Nourish us by your Holy Spirit and fix our hearts upon this word that it may truly transform us. We ask it for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes it's uh, odd, perhaps, if you're visiting with us uh and even to us who've been here for a while, that we go so far back, thousands of years, in Abraham's case, perhaps 4,000 years ago, finding out what happened that many thousands of years ago and what does that mean for us. Here is Paul preaching the gospel in the whole Roman world And he's interacting in synagogue after synagogue with the Jews because he himself is a Jew. And he again and again is accused of attacking the whole history of the Jewish faith. And Paul is, uh, he is fixed on a, uh, a quest to convince them that he is not standing against that tradition, but he is upholding that tradition. That what happened to Abraham is going to demonstrate that what Paul is doing and saying has to do with the, rea- with the true interpretation of everything that has occurred up to that point. Many commentators that I've read on Romans have talked about the fact that Paul was intensely Jewish and the gospel is intensely Jewish. It's been a mistake for us to divide between Jew and uh, Jewish teaching in the Old Testament and Christian teaching of the New Testament in a wrong way. Uh, Sometimes we do this because of what Judaism itself is, what Judaism was in the day of Paul or what Judaism is today. And that's why, as you've heard me quote one rabbi saying, when he heard about the group Jews for Jesus, just laughed and said, there's no such thing as a Jew for Jesus. But in reality, that's all there were to begin with, were Jews for Jesus. And Jesus was a Jew, and Paul was a Jew. And so Paul is so concerned here in chapter 4 to demonstrate that he is not outside the Old Testament, but he is inside the Old Testament uh, he is proclaiming the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul would say to each one of us that what happened with Abraham has everything to do with your destiny. It has everything to do with your relationship to God. And whether or not you have the same faith of Abraham will determine whether you are brought into a right relationship with God or not. Whether you be Jew or Gentile, Abraham is critical. And understanding him is not some dusty old thing, doesn't matter one way or another. It matters everything. And so Paul takes great pains to go back to the text and explain the reality of it. For the Jews had looked at the law as a kind of protection for them. Really, the Jews looked at it in this way. They're the haves, the Jews, and then the have-nots of the Gentiles. And you became a have if you took on circumcision and the dietary laws and started attending Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath and and the various laws. This would enable you to be a have. Well, the gospel comes along. Paul comes along this Jew and says, here's the way it is. We're all have nots. Okay? We all have not the glory of God, he says in chapter 3, verse 23. None of us has the glory of God, Jew or Gentile, he says there in chapter four, verse 15, he says the law reveals the wrath of God. It brings wrath. You think it's your protection, but this law in the first place tells us how desperately we need the grace of God. And you've denied that part of the law. And you've become dependent on these external things, denying your own desperate need for God's mercy and love. And so, no surprise that they would reject the mercy and love as it manifested itself so magnificently in the person of Christ. It just manifested already their rejection of Yahweh. Because when Yahweh shows up in the brightest revelation of who He is, they reject that mercy and love in Christ. And so, those who believe in the same way Abraham believed, those and those alone are going to be the people of God. Those and those alone are righteous before God. And he describes this faith in verse 17 that we read. Believing in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then... Parallel to that, that belief in the one who gives life to the dead and causes existence, the things that do not exist. In other words, he is given a promise that he's going to have a child. He's a 100 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. There's no way they can have a baby. And it says he continued to believe in that promise. Uh, hope against hope, it says. Even though he knew his body was, was already dead, literally it reads already dead, He still believed that God would bring life from him. And in the Jewish way of thinking, the birth of Isaac is like a resurrection of Abraham in Isaac. It's like the resurrection of yourself in your child. And so he believed him for that resurrection, that life. And notice the parallel in verse 24. It was not that statement that when he believed that it was counted to him as righteousness, it was not written for his alone, but verse 24, ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And there's the parallel. Abraham believed in hope against hope that God would raise uh, a seed from him. And we believe in the same God that Abraham believed in. And we believe in the same thing, that this God is able to raise Christ from the dead and did raise Christ from the dead. We believe in resurrection. We believe in the power of God. We believe in our need of that power of God to raise us from the dead, as we will look at in a bit. And so, uh, as Godet, the uh, 19th century French commentator, writes, the birth of Isaac and the resurrection of Jesus are the two extreme links of one and the same chain. The one is the point of departure and the other is the consummation of the history of salvation. The point of departure In a resurrection promise, finally ending in the resurrection of Christ. And the faith of Abraham must be our faith as well. But you see that the kind of faith means that we are believing in the same helpless way as Abraham. We're believing in a similar way that we are dead and must be raised from the dead. That, that we do not have life. And then extended from that, we have no righteousness of our own. Because it says this Abraham who believed in the one who could bring life out of death is also the Abraham who in verse 5 believed in him who justifies the ungodly. So Abraham entrusted himself that the Lord would bring life from his dead body and he entrusted himself to this God that he would be justified even though he was ungodly. And that's us, the same faith. That we recognize, I come to you with nothing like Abraham. Jew or Gentile, we all come to you with nothing like Abraham. And we come to you dead like Abraham. And we must be transformed. We must be renewed. You must give us spiritual life. And finally, you must give us new physical life in the final resurrection. You must make us acceptable through Jesus Christ. Well, there's a bit of a review trying to set the stage for this last interesting uh, phrase in verse 25. It says, He raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, And there on page 942, verse 25, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, this has really been a a verse, like many verses in Romans, with a lot of discussion historically. Because this little preposition, dia, in the Greek, almost always means because of. Now, it it works pretty well in the first part. He was delivered up because of our trespasses. We can understand that, can't we? Because of our sin, because of our trespasses, he was delivered up in order to redeem us from those trespasses. But then the word raised because of our justification has given pause and... So looking for other ways that that little preposition that's repeated exactly in the same way in the second half, maybe it's not looking in this way to say raised because of our justification, but raised in order to bring about justification. But as many have pointed out, uh, the most recent I've read, uh, Daniel Kirk, an excellent book on uh, Romans, talking about the resurrection in Romans, that... The reason that this word has been changed in its meaning, and you can hardly ever find that meaning anywhere else, actually. It just always means because of. Usually the reason is a theological reason, not a grammatical reason. In other words, it's like, well, it doesn't fit the way we think, so we're going to make this word mean something else. So I'm going with the meaning of the word, okay? Um, Some would say it's just a rhetorical reason. The reason he uses the same preposition is just to make the both halves say or use the same word, but I think there's another reason for it, and that is that his his resurrection was brought about because of the justification that occurred in his death, and I want to explore that for a minute with you <clears throat> um, you'll You'll notice obviously in chapter 3 that our justification is associated with the death of Christ. And it usually is associated with the death. This is one of the few times it's ever associated with the resurrection. And so in verse, chapter 3, verse 24, it says, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. And so It it associates so closely our justification with what Christ did on the cross. Same thing in chapter 5. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. So the justification in both cases, before and after this, chapter 3 and chapter 5, focus on the justification that occurred because of His blood. Because of what Christ did on the cross. Now, the resurrection then, and you have to bear in mind what the resurrection meant to those to whom it it was revealed. Take Paul on the road to Damascus. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus had appeared to many, and finally, Paul says to one as born late. He says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now I want you to understand that when Jesus Christ was revealed to Paul on the road to Damascus as the one resurrected from the dead, it changed Paul's view of what the cross was. It's because of the resurrection that Paul then had a new understanding of the death of Christ. It reinterpreted for him the death of Christ and the cross of Christ. Up to that point, he was simply uh, a man who rose up against Jewish thinking. He was uh, considered a criminal and he was opposed to the one true God of Israel. And he he, he was put to death and he was cursed of God. That was Paul's view. He was cursed of God. And then he he came to think that he was perfectly righteous in what he did. He came to believe that he accomplished the righteousness of God on the cross. And that was because of the resurrection. And so the resurrection occurred, he was raised because of the justification accomplished through his death. Leslie Newbigin said this, and this helps to get at it. The resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the manifestation of a victory. A manifestation of a victory. It's a manifestation that sins were put to death. It's a manifestation that Jesus did in his person. Sin was condemned and sin was paid for. That it was finished, as he said, on the cross. And the resurrection is the declaration of heaven. In fact, it's the vindication of Christ himself. It is heaven's declaration that he is the righteous one. He has accomplished righteousness and it makes it public to all. So, Richard Gaffin can say the resurrection is Jesus' justification. It is His vindication. And so, Christ shared our condemnation so that we now can share His vindication or His justification. He dies in our place and is condemned. And now, as we trust in Him We die in him, and our sins are condemned in him, but now we are justified and vindicated in him as well. And so he was raised up for our justification. And this helps us understand why so often in Scripture the the cross is not mentioned. Even though Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that this is the heart of his message, even as it is here in Romans 3. That the cross is the centerpiece of justification. But then why in Acts is the cross hardly ever mentioned? It's all about the resurrection. You will hear Peter talk about it. He does not explain that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. In his first sermon, And you're thinking, Peter, (laughs) that's a rather important part of the message. And you left it out. You only spoke of the resurrection. Or, why does it say in Romans 10 this? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. you say, ah uh, Paul, wait a minute. <laughs> what about the cross? You can't be saved unless you understand that Christ died on the cross for our sins. You just can't. Now, why, why would you say that? Why this emphasis in Acts over and over again? I've got you know there's no time but just dozens of passages you know scattered throughout acts and the new testament that speak of the resurrection this phrase god raised him from the dead was one of the earliest creedal affirmations of the first christians god raised him from the dead the reason is for the the christian and for all the early christians and for us they looked at the cross through the resurrection it included the meaning of the resurrection and it. it defined of the, of the crucifixion. It defined what Christ did and was on the cross. And so they could speak of believing that he raised him from the dead and that would include, obviously, what he accomplished on the cross. And that's why, as you're familiar, many of you, with the passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 15 where he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Well, wait, he still died on the cross, didn't he? Yeah, but if he wasn't raised, then he was just a Jewish martyr at best. He was just somebody that got killed by the Romans. That's all, apart from the resurrection. But if there's resurrection, it tells us what was accomplished on the cross that He was condemned for our sake. And in believing in the resurrection, you see, we are believing at once in the mighty power of God to raise Him from the dead. We're believing in God's power to transform us, the God who created the world, and we're believing in what God did in Christ on the cross. And so that's why Paul, in summarizing what the Thessalonians believe, he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Charles Hodge said if He had not been raised, our ransom or our redemption in that case, instead of being publicly accepted, it had been rejected. You see, if He's not raised from the dead, then it's as though that supposed ransom it didn't work. It wasn't good. It didn't accomplish anything. It didn't bring us to new life. It didn't bring us into a relationship with God. It didn't bring righteousness for us. It didn't bring God's favor. It didn't bring new creation. And so the resurrection, in a sense, is the incarnation, the, the, the incarnation of our justification. If death is the payment of our debt, resurrection is the acknowledgement of that debt being paid, you see. If he paid for our debt, resurrection is the acknowledgement of it. And so, the resurrection represents God's justification of Jesus, his formal divine vindication that he is the righteous one. But it brings about the justification of believers who... As Byrne puts it, though far from sinless, come by God's favor under the scope of the same divine verdict. So as we trust in Christ, what God said of Jesus in his resurrection, that you're vindicated, all who trust in him, God says, you too are vindicated. You too have no condemnation, even as my son has no condemnation. He is the righteous one and I favor him and I acknowledge him publicly to be the righteous one by raising him from the dead. And any who trust in him, you will be associated with my son forever. The glorious gospel, the glorious gospel accomplished through the death and resurrection of Christ. Let me close with just a few applications about not only this part, but this, this whole section. Uh, there's a, I mentioned this in, uh, to a few people this week, but there's a, a Swedish commentator, Anders Nigren, in talking about this phrase in verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. He says this, this believing in hope against hope is for Paul something essential to faith essential to faith. In other words, hoping in God when there is no hope. He says, this isn't an extra for faith. It's like every once in a while you find yourself in that situation. But normally you don't, you know, you have plenty of hope. You know where it's coming from. You can depend on a lot of different things. and, And that's faith too. He says, no, no, we learn from this that real faith is faith, exercise, and it's hope against hope. Without hope and yet with hope. That's the real mark of faith. Only where these stand over against each other is faith found. Where man can manage with his own resources, it is not a matter of faith. Faith is not self-reliance. Faith is the opposite of self-reliance. So it's the same faith, the same belief in God's life-giving power. Now... For you and for me, I think this really... You have to ask yourself the question, for instance, how am I manifesting Christ to my wife or my husband or my children? Then you get into an area or to people around me. Then you get into an area where you think, gosh, how far from it am I? And then you start in the areas of hope against hope. You see, there's no way that... I could be Christ-like in this world. There's no way that I could be all of these things I need to be. Yet, I believe, oh Lord God, that you will redeem me and save me and make me that person. I'm afraid we never get there. We just kind of look at the possibilities. We kind of throw a little faith for the extras that we need and move on. Do we wake up every day and say, oh Lord, I have no hope in anything that I might do for you. But I trust in your mighty promise that you will do for me what I cannot do for myself. I think Nigrin makes an excellent point for us that this is the faith that justified Abraham. It's a helpless faith. It's a faith that comes to the end of its resources and still believes in the mighty power of God. And the graciousness of God. Is that the faith that we have? Hope against hope. And it is faith in promise. We emphasize this. But it's the promise that reveals who God is and what He can do. The promise that if you trust in my Son, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And He spoke of the Holy Spirit. For instance... All the promises of the New Testament that speak of what we can be and are in Christ Jesus. The promise is God's pledge of Himself, His pledge of His resources. It's not our idea, it's God's idea. His promise is personal and intimate. It's not just a general force working things out in this world, it's not karma, it's not just, hey man, you gotta have faith. You know, people say that all the time. It's not just faith that things are going to work out. It's faith in the specific promises of this God, of what He will do for you. That's the only faith there is: is faith in the promise of God. And even James Dunn points out, it was not faithfulness, it was not His covenant loyalty, it was not His obedience. The strength of Abraham's faith was precisely that it was unsupported by anything else. It was something which it was not something which Abraham could do. It was trust, simple trust, nothing but trust, and trust in the promise. And then I want to remind you, and I'll, I'll close here with this. There are other things to be said, but for time. Faith, again, we talked about this. Last time, faith gives him glory. Faith gives him glory. Faith, remember this please, faith recognizes his glory. That's what faith does. It recognizes his greatness and his goodness. It is God who gives the promise. It's ours to receive it. This is the only honor man can give to God, Nigrin says. It's the only honor you can give to Him, to trust Him. Only in faith is a man right in his relationship with God. Only as we are believing Him and trusting Him do we honor Him. And Calvin talks about the promises of God in 2 Peter 1. He says, these promises refer to the boundless goodness of God. It is a consistent mark of God that he prosecutes his course of benevolence right to the end. I love that. Prosecutes, pursues his course, his commitment to do you good all the way to the end. His power is inexhaustible, Calvin says, and his desire to do us good is equally inexhaustible. And he talks about the promise as unfolding the vast resources of His power for His people. That's what His promise is. The unfolding of His power, the vast resources of His power. And so you will stand in a doxology to God, in a praise to God, as you're looking away from yourself and you're believing His promise. And Calvin says, no greater insult can be shown to him than by rejecting the grace which he offers us. No greater insult because it implies a doubt of the truthfulness and the goodness of God. And so I would urge you, if you have not trusted in God to change you, God to forgive you through Christ, God to make you a new person uh, through his Son. That you cry out to him and say, Lord, draw me. Give me this faith. Grant, Lord, that I would give you the honor of helpless dependence. And Lord, search out the ways in which I simply depend on my own resources and not you. And I drift along, I coast along, I'm putting up with sinful habits. I'm putting up with the way things are simply because I don't believe you. Your weakness and deadness are not the issue. The issue is the power of God to create life in you where there was no life. And Calvin, and I mentioned this in Sunday school, he talks about the reason it says that he calls into existence the things that do not exist. He says he can just give a nod of his head and it happens. I love that. Just nods his head. You have resurrection life. That's his power to transform you. Are you believing Him in this way? Are you resting Him in him in this way? May God grant that you will begin to believe the great promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that in spite of all else that we see around us, in spite of what we feel, What we know about ourselves, what our habits have been, what our background is, what our failures have been, whatever we are. Lord, that these will not define to us what we will become. But we, like Abraham, we won't define ourselves. He didn't define himself by his deadness or or Sarah's deadness. He rested in your promise. He owned that promise. That defined him. He took the position that that promise assigned him. No, Lord, we pray that we will do the same. We will not plead our weakness. We will not plead our upbringing. We will not plead our failure. Oh, Lord, we will believe in the one whom Paul says is able to do exceedingly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Lord, we pray that You would give us a real faith, for it is that faith, a faith that is full of hope in the face of hopelessness, that was the faith of Abraham by which he was justified, by which he came into a right relationship with You. Oh, Lord, take away... All of our self dependence. Take away our commitment to our own purposes, our commitment to satisfy ourselves apart from you, and to think that we can and will be happy apart from you. May we abandon those quests, Lord. May, be it, one, may it be one quest to have this God who gave Isaac to Abraham and now gives the Lord Jesus to us. Oh Lord, may we have that hope of a transformation now, a continual growing life of transformation in a fellowship with you under your favor that will finally issue in the final day of a resurrection from the dead, new bodies and a new creation all accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is Lord. Oh, bring it about for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening
1: to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
0: Brave break in through the shades of night and chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away